everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Dr. Bob Weathers. Really happy to, to be with you today. Grateful for those of you that have watched the, the past few episodes, and we're going to move forward today. Uh, let me say a word about myself. I uh, My background is in psychology. My PhD is in clinical psychology, and uh, I have a background in addiction. And I mean that both uh, professionally in terms of my studies and personally in terms of my life experience. And I think that that's important uh, for me to share with you as, as we move uh, into talking about addiction. I'll be wanting to combine, in a sense, left brain and right brain perspectives. The left brain would be the more research-based, uh, scientific uh, background for talking about addiction and recovery. And uh, the, the right brain would be speaking uh, out of personal experience. Many of you listening will, will yourselves be in addiction recovery. And if, if you're not directly in recovery yourself, uh, it's almost guaranteed that you know someone and oftentimes someone close who is. <clears throat> and if that's not the case, uh, you'll know someone who's, uh, who is actively addicted. And so I feel like we're talking about a universal phenomenon and so if we can adopt this kind of left and right brain complementarity, I think it will serve the conversation. So in that spirit then, uh, let me share something with you uh, uh, before we kind of dive into the material today. I've had the occasion this last week to read a brand new book by author Amy Dresner. And the title of the book is My Fair Junkie, a little riff off of My Fair Lady. And in the same spirit as my introduction here, Amy achieves something, I think, in her book that's really important as I see it, and that is that she talks about addiction from the inside in a way that is deeply resonant for anybody who knows addiction personally. But beyond that, and maybe just as importantly, uh, if not more so, is that I think that it can be very helpful for those who are loved ones of uh, active addicts, but especially those that are in recovery, to kind of make sense of what happened in addiction. Amy gives a very kind of unvarnished first-person account of active addiction uh, moving into recovery, and I think it would be of value. I think of facts. I feel like it should be required reading for anybody who's been touched by addiction, whether personally or relationally, and so I highly recommend that it's available um, online through Amazon, and I read it on Kindle, so it's available electronically too. Amy Dresner, My Fair Junkie, and she paid me no money to tell you this. I think it's just a really valuable contribution. I'm grateful for your work, Amy. We'll be talking today about plural recovery, and by plural recovery, what I mean is, is this, is that most of the focus in recovery has been on self-responsibility in terms of the the addict moving into recovery, uh, uh, being accountable to himself or herself in terms of uh, turning things around. And I think that's as it should be. Um, but uh, become more and more convinced that an equal uh, uh, kind of counterweight to individual responsibility is what psychology calls co-regulation. And this brings in the relational dimension. And, and uh, I think all of us know, kind of common sense-wise, that, that the, as the saying goes, no man is an island. But I think it's really important in the context of recovery to uh, <coughs> utilize relational resources, uh, on the one hand, for supporting uh, 
effective recovery. But I think also to acknowledge how absolutely central it is to sustained recovery, to address relational ruptures, breaks in trust, uh, disappointments, frustrations, violations, betrayals, all of that go hand in hand with active addiction. And so I feel like it's really important that we, that we introduce dialogue with our loved ones, uh, oftentimes facilitated by, by coaches and, and other professionals who are skilled in facilitating that kind of conversation. If the recovery is going to take, it's gonna require, uh, in most cases, I believe, healing, healing of relationships. And so when I talk about plural recovery, I mean all of these things is that I'll be talking with you I'm talking about my own recovery firsthand, or you can presume that in what I present. I'll be bringing in uh, uh, suggestions from the research that address how healing uh, can best happen. And I think that, that, that healing, especially from something as complex as addiction, certainly re uh, requires our addressing the relational dimensions of that. And I'm gonna flesh that out as a reminder of where we've been the last two or three weeks here in just a few moments. Last week, we looked at holistic self-care. We had provided a holistic four-quadrant model the week before, and I'll touch on that in just a few moments. Last week, our focus was on self-care. What is it that the, the uh, individual who wishes to recover from addiction, what is it that, that they must do in order to build a foundation for uh, successful recovery? And so we talked about this in terms of self-care across a number of dimensions. And uh, as, I, as I mentioned, we'll go into that in just a moment uh, as, by, by way of review. I have the sense that we've moved from kind of a more general discussion to getting more and more focused, more and more specific, more and more applied. Today, we'll be looking at the role of self-compassion in recovery. And we won't be talking about it as a theoretical entity, um, uh, nearly as much as we'll be talking about what can I do, what can you do to foster self-compassion or forgiveness. And so we'll be going in depth in this throughout our session today. Um, we'll be looking at why self-compassion in recovery is essential uh, for successful sustained recovery. And I think by the end of today's session, you'll have a clear sense of how vital it is to address this, this uh, dimension of self-compassion right in the heart of recovery. So just as a, as a quick kind of introduction back into the, the, uh, the momentum of where we left off last week, we discussed holistic self-care as involving at least four different dimensions. We've talked about these dimension in, dimensions in quadrants, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But for simplicity's sake, we talk about recovery and holistic self-care within recovery involving addressing the biological or the biological and medical dimensions on the one hand, that there are psychological and spiritual dimensions on the other. That's exactly where we'll be going more in depth today. We also discussed uh, social uh, dimensions in terms of work and education and criminal justice, um, those kind of social entities that so much <laughs> provide context for uh, recovery and must be addressed in uh, effective recovery. And then finally, we talked about the cultural slash relational dimensions. And I feel like today's conversation will kind of plot itself in the psychological and the spiritual, as well as the cultural and the relational. 
our very first week together, we focused almost exclusively on addiction in the brain. We were looking at the biological and medical dimensions. And I know that in future uh, presentations here, we'll be looking at uh, the, the, uh, the social, the legal, the educational, the professional dimensions as well. In fact, I was speaking earlier with one of our co-producers, Austin Armstrong. I want to give a shout out to Austin and to Franz Salvatierra, who are the co-producers of our, of our weekly podcast here. Austin was sharing with Franz and me that he's reached out to uh, attorneys um, uh, to uh, alert them to this resource. And I asked, I said, well, what's your thought there? And as soon as he began describing it, I, I felt the truth of it. It just took me a minute to have him identify it is that uh, in the case of criminal attorneys, they're dealing with individuals, many if not most addicts have had some interaction with the legal system, criminal justice system, by virtue of whether it's a DUI or having committed a crime uh, related to the addiction or having just been using drugs or selling drugs or buying drugs, which uh, in most cases is itself illegal. And so there's that group of attorneys that might have vested interest in learning more about addiction and uh, and recovery. And there's another dimension, and as soon as you said it, Austin, it, it also resonated for me, and that would be divorce attorneys who are dealing with the relational fallout of addiction. And uh, the cost of addiction is huge, no matter how you slice it, but it's, it's direct bearing on the health of relationships is immense. And in fact, we'll be talking about that more today as we talk about finding forgiveness within relationships as well as within ourselves. So to summarize these four different dimensions of the bio, psycho, social, cultural perspective on holistic self-care, we, we provided this, this map or this model last week, and it's a quadrant model. So in the upper right-hand quadrant is that addiction affects my physical health, and it stands to reason that to sustain uh, recovery, I'm going to need to address my physical health uh, uh, with, with, uh, uh, with consistency and with real commitment. And we talked about various aspects of our physical health, just common sense ones, starting with sobriety, that a, as we established in our first meeting here, that a sober brain has resources that are exponentially more, uh, uh, more available and also critical to sustaining recovery. And so sobriety is kind of a foundational touchstone for talking about recovery. We also talked about physical health in terms of just taking care of our bodies uh, nutritionally, uh, with sleep, with exercise. And uh, even today, we'll be introducing in the second portion of today's presentation, a brief meditation that some form of self-regulation, ways of managing stress are critical, and these all address the physical dimensions of, of addiction, our, our physical health. Uh, if we drop down to the lower right-hand quadrant, my work and other responsibilities, that's what we just touched on in terms of, of uh, how important it is for the, for the uh, individual who's sincere in his or recover, her recovery to get back to work, if that's, if that's in an occupation, if that's parenting full-time, if that's uh, uh, education. Um, and oftentimes there are some barriers to that, including entanglements with the law, and all of these represent kind of the real outer world that, that must be dealt with for there to be a comprehensive re uh, recovery program. If we move right across to the left there, in the lower left-hand quadrant, this is where we are in the realm of family and relationships, and we already touched on that with talking about divorce attorneys and uh, their interaction with addiction. And 
as well as looking at the centrality of relationships in terms of facilitating healing uh, really as, as, as the bedrock of any idea of plural recovery, that recovery takes a village truly. And if we go straight up to the, the upper left-hand quadrant, that plots us right where we're going to be for the remainder of today's episode, looking at my psychological and spiritual health. The same for you in recovery. I guess I should mention something here is that even though we're talking about recovery in terms of recovery from addiction, and that will be our focus throughout this series, um, I don't feel like that I want to relegate this to just the population of those that are in recovery from addiction. Um, uh, what we're talking about here is holistic self-care for any of us. And in fact, uh, one of the key preventives, it seems like to me, uh, to prevent addiction is to maintain holistic self-care in all four of these dimensions that we just talked about. And so uh, if, you, if you yourself have not dealt with addiction, uh, there's no reason why you need to kind of turn off your brain. I think there's tremendous resource in every one of our presentations. And I also believe that in terms of plural recovery, that being for the, for the individual who's in recovery from addiction, to be with family members and other loved ones who themselves are committed to holistic self-care uh, cannot help but be a huge bonus. And so count yourselves in with whatever we're talking about today. It applies to all of human life. I guess I want to say one other piece, too, is even though our focus is on substance addiction, specifically alcohol and other drugs, um, and 25% of the American adult population is addicted to substance, uh, if we include alcohol, uh, nicotine, and then all of the various other drugs, including prescription drugs and illegal drugs, that's 25% of the American adult population, which is startling. Maybe not so much with all of the... the uh, um, media exposure, especially to the, op the opiate uh, epidemic that has uh, fallen in our country in the last number of years. Um, but if we open this up, and I've made reference to this before, if we open up the conversation about addiction to the, the various other behaviors that we're enslaved to, and I use the word enslaved uh, uh, intentionally uh, because that's the root of the word addictus, uh, the Latin root for our word addiction is simply to be a slave. And so if we open up addiction to include all the other non-substance, what are sometimes referred to as process or behavioral addictions, and this includes some of those that we're well familiar with, again, in the, in the media, from various forms of sex addiction, uh, including pornography addiction, to include gambling addiction, to include various food addictions, uh, uh, issues around eating, um, uh, in, and and open it up even further to include now the internet and internet addictions, uh, as well as um, workaholism. <laughs> what we, as we begin to expand this, what we find out is that 90% of the American adult population uh, in a recent study endorsed at least, acknowledged at least one behavioral addiction ongoing right now. So we're talking about a phenomenon, if we broaden it from just being substance, that's 25% of the population, to including all behavioral addictions, which now expands it to 90% of the population, we're talking about a phenomenon that's really universal. So I, for one, would like to see expanding our conversations about addiction um, out of kind of the ghetto of focusing only on behavioral addictions, I mean, excuse me, on substance addictions to include the behavioral addictions as well. And as soon as we do that, then there's every reason for all of us to have our ears perked up, okay? 
Okay, now in that spirit and with that setting as a backdrop, I want to touch on what we uh, introduced last week, which is to look at what was the upper left-hand quadrant in the previous diagram. We've just expanded it here to take up a bit more space. We're going to be looking at psychological and spiritual health today. More specifically, the, um, the inner world of our emotions, our psychological life, and our spiritual life as they focus on several of the, the dimensions that we just opened up last week talking about developmental lines. We discussed the idea of multiple intelligences, and I'll just review that quickly. The idea of intelligence for most of us is equated with cognitive intelligence. That's what school, after all, tests. That's, that's our understanding of IQ. And most academic courses focus on cognitive intelligence, specifically quantitative or uh, language-related intelligences. Um, and... Uh, there's good reason for that. That's, it's, it's, it's very important for us to develop our cognitive capacities in order to develop multiple perspectives. We move from being egocentric at birth to being able to begin to look more ethnocentrically and eventually world-centrically, to be inclusive of, of diversity. And that, that's directly related to cognitive uh, uh, intelligence. Uh, in cognitive theories, refer to as social perspective taking. And so that's well worth expanding across one's lifetime. But we opened up the conversation about multiple intelligence to expand beyond just intellectual intelligence and now to include other dimensions such as, and you'll see this in the, in the, in the diagram here, these developmental arrows, emotional intelligence, has a lot to do with how aware I am of what's going on inside of me emotionally. It's right up next to the next one, interpersonal intelligence. It's very hard for me to be aware of what you're feeling if I'm not aware of what I feel. And so social or interpersonal intelligence has its own developmental line. Psychosexual intelligence, and why psycho and sexual are put together here, and I'm going to tie it in specifically to today's presentation about uh, self-compassion, is that sexuality runs so deeply for all of us, it's tied into some of our most basic evolutionary drives to propagate the species and perpetuate our genetic line. It's what sexuality affords looking at strictly biologically. And that, that that sexuality, in terms of all of its power instinctively, is wedded uh, to our own psychologies, to our own experiences, including possibly traumatic experiences that we, we've had, including in the sexual realm, affect our sexuality. And it's psychosexual in terms of our relationships with one another, particularly in intimate relationships. Think of romance, for example, are, uh, are uh, under this umbrella of psychosexuality for sure. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about shame in a few minutes and how it is that shame and stress situate themselves right in this realm um, uh, oftentimes. And it's helpful for us to have tools to talk about this. So we'll, we'll be going more into psychosexuality in just a minute. Just to be clear, I just came from a group where I asked the group what psychosexual might mean. And I don't mean by this psycho sexual. <laughs> it's really meant to be one term. <laughs> so we'll talk about that more. And I believe that, that our sexuality uh, is one element of our uh, very, very, that very much informs and is informed by our moral or ethical development. That's the next developmental line. And then finally, our spirituality, which itself is, is a combination of all of these and has its own developmental line in terms of how we integrate personal morality, how we understand the universe, what our values, our purpose, our meaning are, and so on. So all of these lines of development need attention for all of us across our lifespan. 
And uh, I'm going to be fleshing these out here in just a moment in terms of talking about addiction. Let me make a decision here. I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that right now, and then and then I'll uh, move forward. Let me let me talk about this in terms of what happens in active addiction. I mentioned the book earlier by Amy Dresner. She does a fantastic job of elucidating how it is that addiction universally um, affects our our uh, our moral capacity. I actually was thinking of the psychiatrist Carl Jung, who said that alcohol alcoholism. Uh, uh, diminishes our moral stamina. And he, by that, he meant what we're talking about here. If you think about it, that all of us start off uh, developmentally as egocentric. And the goal of child development and good parenting and becoming civilized is to begin to move beyond egocentric moral development into beginning to adopt some of the conventions, the social conventions that we agree upon that will help us if we all work together. So we come up with rules and laws and regulations and so on that help to maintain social structure and familial structure. And that's, that's a developmental achievement to develop a morality that expands beyond being egocentric to being, let's say, ethnocentric, that this is, these are the rules that my people agree on, my family agree on. And then the goal of even further moral development is to begin to care for those that aren't in our family, aren't in our clan. And this would get into the realm, for example, of civil rights, that there are certain inalienable rights that are, uh, are to be received by all, no matter their age or their gender or their race or their language or their origins. What happens predictably in active addiction is that whatever moral development one has attained, that will be actively eroded uh, by as a function of addiction. And I can put this simply, and if you want to go back and review right here at Ask an Addiction Specialist, you can review the very first video, uh, the, the podcast that we did, which was on the addicted brain. We discussed this is that if active addiction, well, let me pause for a second. My ethical reasoning, your ethical reasoning, is for the most part mediated through our frontal cortex, the front part of our brain, which is sometimes referred to as the neocortex. Why it's called the neocortex is that in, uh, in the evolution of species, the human brain is the cutting edge in terms of, of development. And so it's neo, it's new, and we humans are blessed with uh, uh, incredibly powerful neocortexes, cortices. And what happens in addiction is that we go hypofrontal. I think I talked about this in that first presentation, is that what is correlated with, with addiction is hypofrontality. Another way to put that is that we lose our capacity for frontal lobe involvement. And then you do the math on this, is that if you take away my capacity to make sound moral judgment and to inhibit um, impulsive behaviors, then what I'm left with is no access to the moral judgment part of my brain. I'm left with the, um, the, the emotional center of my brain, which operates impulsively and egocentrically. This is referred to in brain science as the limbic system. It's between our ears. And if you take off the frontal cortex, you basically have an amoral, imp impulsive human being that begins to look less and less like a human being, come to think of it. I presented this material earlier today before coming to a group of young men who are all uh, in recovery from severe addiction, typically to, to methamphetamine uh, or heroin. And I put the question to the group and I put it to you as the listeners today. If you've experienced addiction either firsthand or have seen it with those that you love, 
and observed it that way firsthand is that you'll know what I mean by this is that who of us who has any exposure to addiction, which I would maintain as all of us, has not experienced the loss of moral decision-making and impulse control that happens in the active addiction where the frontal cortex goes offline. And so what you have is that you have an impulse of acting out uh, oftentimes profoundly unethical uh, uh, set of behaviors that follow on that. When I propose this to the group, all of us, including myself, could uh, uh, easily uh, agree that we know that experience uh, quite profoundly. And so if addiction by definition erodes, or maybe I can use a stronger word, corrodes uh, our, our best ethical self, what we're left with is as we move into recovery is what the 12-step programs call the wreckage from the past. The horrible things that we have done that represent what happens to any of us when you take away the frontal cortex. In fact, I'll suggest something that might be provocative to you, but I mean it sincerely, um, and that is this is that if you think you wouldn't do what addicts that you know in your life would do, I'm not asking you to do this, but I'm asking you to consider this. If you were to ingest the substances that those addicts, uh, that you know, active addicts, have before they've committed various violations, crimes even, and so on, um, you might not do what they've done as quickly as them, but I guarantee you if we proceeded to continue to introduce these chemicals into your system. At some point, all of us are, it's the grand leveler. Addiction is the grand leveler. At some point, all of us will regress developmentally in terms of moral uh, uh, decision-making, sound judgment, impulse control, and it reduces all of us down, as one client said today, down to our lizard brains. We all become lizards at some point. None of this is meant to justify, nor was it today meant to justify or excuse behaviors but it gives us a standpoint from which we can now move into recovery. I want to talk a little bit about relapse, uh, and, uh, and I'll weave this back into talking about what happens uh, in not only active addiction, but in early, in early recovery, it, and, and how this relates to what we can do ourselves to manage our interior worlds. The number one trigger for relapse is stress. That can be external stress, coming in from the environment and or internal stress in terms of, of uh, its manifestation in terms of our, for example, our anxiety, increasing anxiety, increasing distress. If the number one trigger for relapse is stress, the number one stressor for most people is relationally based. It's in the context of our connections, what psychology calls attachment. And if the number one stressor for most of us is relational, the number one relationship stressor for most of us is shame. And so I want to talk about shame for just a minute, and then we'll tie this back into the ethical developmental line and what's to be done in terms of building self-compassion. For shorthand, what we can say is that shame is the opposite of self-compassion. So we'll, we'll be looking at an antidote to shame and talking about it in the language of forgiveness and self-compassion. And I might forget to say this later, so I'll say it now. We're not talking about cheap grace here. We're not talking about cheap forgiveness. You noticed a minute ago as I was talking about what happens to the brain in addiction, we're not talking about excusing behaviors. In fact, as I presented to the group today, it makes all the reason, all, all the more reason for not repeating those behaviors. That's the essence of genuine, uh, uh, that's the basis for genuine self-forgiveness is where in the language of the 12-step programs, we make living amends 
we go about to change our lives. But let me talk a little bit with you about shame. What is shame? When I ask this of our clients, most of them have done some exploration of this, and they'll oftentimes contrast shame with guilt, and it can be a helpful way to get into talking about shame. We won't use some dictionary definition, we'll just use common sense here. Guilt is where I step on your foot and feel bad about it and apologize to you and resolve not to do that again. Shame is when I accidentally step on your foot and and may feel guilt for that, but it goes in deeper. And so it's, it's not only did I step on your foot and uh, feel bad about it, but there's something wrong with me for having stepped on your foot. I use that example to pick something that's fairly neutral and, and simple for us to gather, but it, 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 it'll, it'll uh, illustrate what we're talking about here when we talk in the context of addiction, is that in the context of addiction, I should feel guilty about my behavior, including my addictive behaviors. And in fact, guilt is like putting your hand on a hot oven. If I don't feel guilty, I'm not likely to change. But when that guilt slides into shame, and it does for most addicts for you to know, and for most people that are in early recovery, they're beset by shame, and that shame will actually paralyze us. And how does that happen? Is that if, 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 if in my addiction I did something wrong that I can correct, that would be in the realm of guilt, there's hope for me. But if in my addiction I did something that bespeaks a certain rottenness or brokenness or defectiveness about me, what you're doing is you're sucking the, the air out of any kind of hopeful balloon for me. After all, there's something wrong with me. How can I possibly change it? Can you see how that can move into a sense of stuckness or paralysis? And so I'm not at all about forgiving if that means banishing guilt, because I think guilt is, is a corrective instinct and is, is vital. But what we are talking about is beginning to differentiate between shame and guilt and make sure that we can do all we can in the language of the groups I lead to unshame ourselves in order to uh, activate ourselves and move us in the direction of, of authentic recovery. We talk about shame um, uh, uh, in the context of plural recovery. We talk about it in the context of that lower left-hand quadrant, that it's relational. How is shame relational? If you stop and think about it, is that, is that the worst... Uh, next slide. Let me, let's go to the next slide. The, the, the worst stress that I can experience is having you reject me. And shame would, would believe that I'm reject-worthy, that I'm rejectable. And so why would that be so stressful? We're not so evolved as a species that, that in the not-so-distant past, if I literally was to be rejected by my, by my social group, whether it's a family or my clan, and let's say sent into the wilderness, that that would be one step uh, closer to my death, my imminent death, because I'd be there'd be predators out there waiting for me to be separated from the clan. And we're not so evolved, and why I mention that is that we're not so evolved that our DNA has changed that to be separated or to be shunned uh, uh, does that it wouldn't connect to this basic survival instinct. And so, if you think about it, to be shamed is tantamount to having my survival threatened. And uh, as it turns out in the research, and I said. Uh, 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 shame is, is stressful, it, it's correlated is the, 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 uh, in a study of 200 studies of what kicks up the highest stress hormones, specifically cortisol, it's the experience of or the fear of loss of uh, social acceptance and the corresponding loss of self-esteem. 
those are fancy words for shame. The loss of social acceptance, you reject me. Loss of self-esteem, I reject me. And so here we are left with shame, which is well nigh universal uh, in, in not only in active addiction, where oftentimes the addict will self-medicate to reduce his or her shame, his or her sense of being a loser, but in, in recovery. If I talk about shame in recovery, it may seem counterintuitive. What's to be ashamed of? Think about it for just a second. If I'm in recovery, what does that mean? That means I was addicted. And I think we can all agree that to be addicted uh, is not, to be labeled as addicted is not a compliment. And um, the social stigma towards addiction is understandable and it's huge. And so it's just one step removed to be in recovery. And so ironically, and maybe it looks paradoxical on the surface, but it's nearly universal. To be in recovery is, is itself to be, uh, I, I remember seeing a t-shirt, recovery is for losers. Um, that kind of captures it right there. And so we're up against something even in, in sincere recovery in terms of addressing shame. So that begs the question, how do we work with shame? How do we work with our own shame? What I'd like to do is come back. We're going to take a brief break right now to see if there's any questions uh, in our audience. Um, breathe for just a moment. And then what we'll do is we're shifting to an exercise that will take us uh, uh, the, the latter part of our, of our uh, session today, where I'll be introducing one way of working with our shame very directly. And I'm going to invite all of us to participate in that, okay? So let me take a, a break here for a little sip of water. I uh, invite you, if you have any questions, to submit those to Ask an Addiction Specialist. For the next few minutes, I want to invite you to uh, join me in a, in a meditation. And uh, you're welcome to close your eyes. Um, I probably will, uh, even though I'm on camera right now, uh, simply to reduce distraction. If you're not in a setting where you can close your eyes, I think you can certainly keep your eyes open. Or for, for any reason, uh, closing your eyes uh, doesn't work for you. I, I feel like I want you to do what works for you. It works better for me when I meditate generally, and including this forgiveness meditation, to reduce distractions. Um, and what I'm going to do in this, this meditation is talk us through uh, um, uh, an exercise that uh, you can use yourself uh, after we meet today. And it's a way to begin to work with those areas of our life that we're, uh, uh, of which we're ashamed. I'm going to be a, do, a, do a bit of improvising today. I want to try something that I've done on my, my own. I've practiced this particular practice I'm going to be sharing with you. I've practiced it uh, um, intensively for the last five years. There was a lengthy period of time where I practiced it every morning as part of my morning quiet time. More recently, uh, I've uh, moved it to being a, basically a couple times a week. Sometimes it's more often. This week it's been more often. But it's a way to kind of keep the system cleared out. And I'm going to try a specific application of this today that has come to me more recently. Uh, I was out of town this weekend at a conference, and I, it came to me again spontaneously. And I felt like I might share it, and I'll tell you why I'm sharing it, because I think what it does is it universalizes this practice, is that you don't have to be an addict uh, in recovery uh, to receive benefit from this exercise in increasing self-compassion. We talked about shame, and what we're wanting now to do is build muscles that, that can aid us in reducing our shame. And as I mentioned earlier, I think that self-compassion or forgiveness in many ways are the antidote to shame. So I hope you'll join me, okay? So here we go, a big experiment. 
and close my eyes. What I want to do is ask uh, each one of us to, uh, hope the, hopefully you're sitting comfortably or lying comfortably, just taking a deep breath, fill your lungs and release in your own time. Uh, do that one more time, breathing in. This time, fill your breath, fill uh, fill up in your body, and your tummy should uh, raise a little bit when you do that. Notice that sensation, and then release, and your tummy should settle. I'm going to do two more breath cycles, and if you can, just focus on the sensations of the breathing. I like to focus on the rising of my belly. Uh, you might try that. It's deep in your body. And uh, see if you can put thoughts out of your mind just for a moment. And if they come up, just gently set them aside and come back to your breathing. Let's do a couple of breath cycles just in silence. We do this kind of exercise to manage our stress or to regulate ourselves <clears throat> for one single reason. Uh, our minds, our brains naturally default to that emotional center of our brain. Um, we naturally default to worrying, uh, to what the Eastern traditions of meditation call monkey mind, swinging from one branch to the next. That's natural for us to do. And if we can settle ourselves physically, uh, and the breath is so accessible, it doesn't require any technology just to breathe and notice it. We begin to move our, our brains, our bodies, from that more anxious, more uh, revved up, vigilant mode, the default mode network is really what it's called, into our executive network, which is our frontal cortex. It's a natural way of being able to move from the one to the other. And when we're in that executive system, uh, there's the possibility of experiencing much more settling, much more relaxation. The frontal lobes actually put the brakes on our anxiety. It's not to say that our anxiety can't sometimes um, hijack our frontal lobes and get them going with thoughts, but it originates, that originates in the the fear centers of the brain, deep in the heart of the brain. So let's take one more breath. Breathe out. What I'd like each one of us to do today is to think of something that you've done. If you're in recovery from addiction, I'd like you to think of something that you've done in active addiction about which you feel really bad. Put it in a nutshell, you did somebody really wrong. My only caveat would be, I'd ask you to pick something that you can manage to hold for the next minutes and won't um, drive you into profound distress. I, that's not what I'm advocating. So if you feel touchy about this, you can fix, you can pick something as minor as is manageable. And I honestly would uh, defer to your choice there. But something that you feel bad about, and if you feel like you can handle it, you can think of something that you feel really bad about.
Now, if you're not somebody who's in recovery from addiction, same instruction. I want you to pick something that you've done to somebody, something that you've said or done, maybe not done, even something that you've thought about somebody that you feel uh, a lot of sorrow, a lot of regret about. And we're going to work with that today internally. And I'm going to talk us through that. We can facilitate this by having you think of two parts of yourself. And there's different language I've used myself as I've done this. But for today, we might use this distinction. The distinction between what I'm going to call the moral self, the part of ourselves that wouldn't typically do what we did, that would put the brakes on this. And I'm going to call the other part of ourselves the impulsive self, the part that can override our moral selves. And you can use whatever labels you want for that. I'll tell you, just as an aside, when I did this most recently, I actually called it the saint and the rascal. <laughs> Slightly tongue-in-cheek there, but the idea that I've got a part of me that is pretty saintly, and I've got a part of me that is diabolical. That's the rascal. And we're going to do a meditation with these two characters. So, so for now, we'll call it the moral self and the impulsive self. I purposefully am using the word impulsive as opposed to addicted because I want to include everyone who's watching this to feel like you can be a part of it. So what I want you to do is hold in your mind what it is that you did. And I want the impulsive self to say to the moral self, this is all in your mind's eye, the following. For whatever I have done to you or not done for you, causing you harm, please forgive me. This may seem odd at first, but I want you to give it a shot, okay? Imagine two parts of yourself talking. Sometimes these parts become very conscious for ourselves. We're trying to do that right now. I think it can help here if, as you're addressing the moral self from the perspective of, of the impulsive self that did whatever you did, I think it can help if you can imagine what it feels like to the best part of yourself, this morally developed part of yourself, what it feels like to that part for you to have violated it. So one more time, for whatever I've done to you or not done for you, causing you harm, please forgive me. We'll continue with that for just a moment. The next instruction, for whatever I have said to you or said against you, causing you harm, please forgive me. It can help here, and it's helped me to imagine how I've talked about this moral self of mine, sometimes uh, with great uh, judgment, with great denigration. Put it down. And this is to imagine what that part of us feels like when we, when we put it down, when we ignore it, when we blame or accuse it. For whatever I've said to you or said against you, causing you harm, please forgive me. The next instruction, for whatever I have thought about you or thought against you, causing you harm, please forgive me. Same idea. 
whatever we've thought that would reject this part of ourselves, the part that would override our impulses, our instincts, um, including in addiction, is to ask for forgiveness. That's the first strand. There are two more strands, and we'll move through these. The second strand, this time I'm going to ask something different. I'm going to ask the impulsive self to offer something to the moral self. And this is going to be strange, but stick with me and I'll help amplify it. The instruction is this. For, for whatever you have done to me or not done for me, causing me harm, I forgive you. Now, this requires two things. All of it's in our mind's eye. First of all, it takes identifying how it feels to you to have had this moral, this more moral part of you sometimes be very righteous and very judgmental and what it feels like to have it respond with only judgment, shame, towards the part that made a mistake, maybe made a really bad mistake. So first of all, you have to imagine what that feels like to be on the receiving end of that. This is what psychoanalysis calls our superego <laughs> that judges us. That's the first part. And the second part is asking us to have some understanding, even compassion, for that moral self in its judgment of us. Let me explain that. Is that the part of us that would judge us is there for good reason, and if we violated it, it reacts, understandably. And it's only asking us just to acknowledge that, that, that yes, it will get angry. Yes, it will get judgmental. Yes, it will get activated, because that's kind of its job, and it's just to extend compassion to it. So let's try it again. For whatever you have done to me, or not done for me, causing me harm, I forgive you. Same idea. The next instruction is, for whatever you have said about me, or said against me, causing me harm, I forgive you. For however this high and mighty part of ourselves that sometimes gets pretty pompous, for whatever it has said that has put us down, thrown us in the dirt. It's to acknowledge how that feels, and it's also to understand why this part of us might do that. For me, it's a part of me that's very scared, and maybe if it shames me enough, I'll stop behaving like I have. For whatever you have said to me or said against me, causing me harm, I forgive you. And the final part of this strand, for whatever you have thought about me or thought against me causing me harm i forgive you the part of us that judges us what it thinks about us what that feels like and to forgive and finally the last strand and it's this the impulsive self giving it voice and this is what it's saying in this case to itself for whatever I have done to you, the moral self, whatever I have done to you or not done for you, causing you harm, I forgive myself. This gets us right to the heart of the matter in terms of shame. And as I said before, this is tricky because you can move into excusing yourself and preempt doing the hard work of changing your life. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about really owning up to what we've done, taking responsibility for it, and also extending to ourselves the same compassion that we did in the previous strand, namely, 
that I understand why I did what I did. I'll pick the example for those of us that know addiction firsthand. It's forgiving ourselves for regressing morally, making decisions that harmed others and harmed ourselves. And forgiving ourselves as we understand what it was that made that possible. For me, so many of the, the things that I did that were harmful were a bad combination of material I'd never worked through, unfinished business psychologically coupled with addiction. I don't ever blame alcohol or other drugs for being the evil one. It's a combination of having unworked through pain in our lives, trauma, etc., and then combining that with substance, which disinhibits the brain and leads us to do things that we regret. And so I can only possibly work on whatever it is that led for me to act the way that I did in terms of unfinished business if I'm sober. And so I'm acknowledging here that I did something wrong and I'm extending forgiveness to myself. In other words, I'm not willing to accept shame even as I accept guilt. It was wrong what I did and I intend to change that and there's hope for me for whatever I did to you or didn't do for you, causing you harm, I forgive myself. This is forming an alliance with the moral self that is also who we are. The next, for whatever I have said to you or not, or said against you, whatever I've said to you or said against you, causing you harm, I forgive myself. Finally, for whatever I have thought about you or thought against you, causing you harm, I forgive myself. Who of us, particularly in active addiction, hasn't put down that moral compass by, by judging it, by making fun of it, by slandering it? And this is asking for forgiveness, including giving forgiveness to ourselves for doing that and then making amends uh, and a vow to change our lives. That's the exercise. When you're ready, you can open your eyes. I hope that you found some kind of toehold in this material. I want to recommend something is that if you go to my website, and the last slide is going to have a link to that, uh, and I might well post it on Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'll do that um, later today. Uh, the script of what I just went through, uh, I can post it there for you to see it. Right now it's on my website. And you're welcome to adapt it in whatever way is helpful to you. What we did today, um, demands a lot. It requires for you to go inside yourself and identify different parts of yourself and have them be in dialogue with each other. For some of us that have practiced this, it may come more easily. For some of us who have never done it, it may seem as alien as all get out. And so what I want to suggest is this, if you find that useful working with these internal parts of yourself, I encourage you to practice it. I honestly don't think that doing this once uh, will make uh, any sizable or sustained difference at all. I think what will make a difference is if you practice this regularly. And I want to suggest one further piece is that, is that what we did internally, frankly, most of my practice with this forgiveness uh, exercise has been in my mind's eye with people I've wronged. 
when I got involved in the 12-step program and uh, made a moral inventory, which most of us have heard about that, I had a list of 100 people that I had wronged. And this 100 people were just the beginnings for me of applying this forgiveness practice, where I would literally call them to mind and work, uh, work with them in my mind's eye in terms of establishing uh, uh, genuine, genuine sorrow and asking for forgiveness, as well as, as forgiving them for whatever part they had. And it took me well beyond the 12-step work. I did the 12-step work in terms of making amends, but I found that I wanted to continue. And this exercise right here is something that I continued for years, as I said, daily. Um, and I can vouch for this, is that it helps keep the system cleared out to the extent that I continue to practice that. I don't foresee a time in my life where I won't step on people's feet, and I don't foresee a time in life where I won't have a need for doing this kind of forgiveness work, and I highly value it. I've said this before, and I'll say it here. In terms of all that I've done in terms of my own recovery from addiction, in terms of all of the practices, this that we've talked about, and this that you'll be able to access here at Ask an Addiction Specialist or on my own website, this has been the most valuable to me. And why is it the most valuable? Because I think it addresses the single uh, deepest trigger for relapse for me, and as I suggested earlier, for most people, which is shame, the kind of shame that will not forgive us and actually makes us much more vulnerable to relapse. And so it's been highly valuable to me. And uh, uh, we can revisit this, and I encourage you to revisit this. Uh, but before we uh, wind up today, I want to uh, check and see if there are any questions. And it seems like there is a question out there. And I want to thank you for joining us, dear Angela. And I'm very happy to do my best at responding to your question. Let me read it here just to myself, and then I'll translate it, okay? Uh, I loved your question. Angela asks, besides restoring impulse control, is there a way to relate to impulses that isn't just inhibiting them? Yes, <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> Uh, I feel like it's a really important question. I'll tell you what I, what I spoke of today with the group, Angela, and it was right into this question. And you'll be familiar with this from uh, other conversations that, that you and I've had. Is that, is that for, I'm going to speak now specifically to addiction, for, for the active addict who's lost in, uh, uh, in, in all ways, uh, across all of those quadrants we've discussed, but specifically in terms of the upper left-hand quadrant, is psychologically, spiritually, and even sexually, I meant to mention this and I forgot to, is that it can be very helpful to go in, uh, we talked about it today, is that for most active addicts, they have violated their own sexual uh, codes, own sexual uh, values. And that can be literally in terms of sexuality, it can also be in terms of relationships and romantic connection and so on. And so it's a universal, that was specifically the exercise we went today was going into psychosexual violations. So if, if in active addiction, if in active addiction, I'm violating my own code, uh, I, I think there's real value to, to developing sobriety so I have the capacity to first inhibit my acting out those impulses. What I loved about the conversation today, and it's uh, certainly, I, I want to respond to you. Uh, can you move back to the previous question just so I can review? What I want to do in responding to you, Angela, is to hold out the possibility of, uh, first of all, inhibiting uh, the acting out of impulses, 
it gets more fine-tuned, but I feel like it's really important. And I have to tell you, I was working with a group today that are early in their uh, addiction recovery, and they still resonated with what you're asking here. Is there a way for me to hold uh, value in my impulses? Uh, some of our strongest impulses, for example, aggression, uh, uh, moves me forward in the world. And if I inhibit all aggression, it's possible that there goes all of my ambition. It's just to civilize that, it's to humanize my aggression. Phil said the same thing about sexuality. To cut off one's sexuality, to inhibit it completely, is to risk reducing one's ability to love others. And how could that be a good thing? And so how is it that I can be passionate in my life uh, 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 with impulses that are uh, at my disposal, I think it re requires a both and uh, bi-hemispheric relationship to our impulses, that, uh, that my impulses that well up out of the central part of my brain, the limbic system, that those, those are held in interaction, in dialogue with the frontal cortex, which humanizes them. Sigmund Freud, the founder of modern psychoanalysis, spent so much time talking about the power of sublimating instincts. And what he meant by that was taking our instincts and finding effective and uh, I think vital ways of displaying and enacting those in the world. That's all he meant by sublimation. It's to take instincts that left without any mediation are destructive. But if eliminated from our lives, uh, 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 devitalize us. And so what he talked about in terms of sublimation, I'd like to include here, which is how do we find a way to maybe clean up our act to begin with, but then find a way to reintroduce our impulses. And I think this is in the context of recovery or sobriety. Uh, as I said to the group today, did any of you in your lives uh, set as your life goal to be lily white? that is with no darkness. To be without darkness is to be not a human being. And it's more, how can we cultivate a relationship to our darkness that is conscious and intentional and then bring that, by darkness I just mean all that wells up from the center of our brains that, that are from the center of our souls, from the center of our psyches, that is so vital for creativity and for compassion, for connection. And so uh, I'd like to continue to draw on your question over, uh, over subsequent episodes uh, as we talk about connection and as we talk about creativity, for example. Uh, it's an excellent question, and the answer is yes. In fact, it's imperative that we find some way to relate to impulses that isn't just about erasing them. There's one, one further question. This will be our final question for today, and then we'll be wrapping up. There's a comment. Well, let me read the comment, if I may. Here's somebody, Michael, who says, I've worked a program for 23 years, and I forgive myself and other people. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> that was music to my ears. When I get to the place of having practiced this program for 23 years, I hope, I hope that I can say the same thing as you. What's implied in what you've shared with us here, Michael, is that forgiveness is inherent in sustaining any effective program of recovery. Wouldn't you agree? 
is that I, I have this image of pipe cleaners that clean out the pipes. And I really do feel like the daily forgiveness practice is essential to ongoing recovery. And I, if I put recovery in the broadest sense, that we're talking about recovery for everyone, and that is to recover our best selves, that my best self, in the spirit of Angela's question, my best self includes all of my impulses and instincts held consciously and loved and related to. And my best self includes my fumbling up because I'm a human being with feet of clay. And that includes my forgiving myself. And that includes my clearing out things with others to repair ruptures in relationships. And I can only come to you and ask for forgiveness if I have the capacity to forgive myself. Why otherwise would I make myself vulnerable to you to admit making, making a mistake? And who of us doesn't know that in ourselves as within others? Some of us know people that habitually are incapable of, of apologizing. And at the root of that is a deep shame that can't possibly be flawed, which is to say a deep shame in being human. And we're talking about developing a tool here. And Michael, you've practiced this for 23 years. So my guess is you have very honed instincts and muscles, well-developed muscles in the arena of this. I think that this is a human goal. How can I find a way to repair inside the shame that would otherwise paralyze me and extend the, the, the right hand of fellowship to you, including acknowledging that I've wronged you and, and humble myself before you and ask for forgiveness with sincere intention to not repeat that. So uh, just, as, just by way of word as we wind up, I, I really believe what we've introduced here today is a practice that's a daily uh, practice or at least a regular practice. And Michael, you bear witness to it. And I second that motion. Uh, I'm gonna put, uh, I already have put on my website um, uh, a link to uh, this meditation we did today. You can review how we applied it today. You can also improvise on it in your own language. And I would encourage you to do what I've done much more of, which is apply this to actual people in the outer world that I've wronged. I think it can be helpful to have an interior practice as well, because part of what goes with shame is developing a relationship with those parts of ourselves that we would otherwise banish and exclude. And that which is repressed doesn't go away. It just goes into unawareness. And so we're talking about trying to bring out of unconscious unconsciousness uh, all of these parts of ourselves into awareness so that we can work with them. I'll introduce next week, next slide. I'll introduce next week another, another essential component, I believe, of effective holistic self-care and recovery. Again, in the upper left-hand quadrant, we'll be talking about practicing gratitude and I'll be connecting uh, uh, this practice with research that's been done that clearly indicates that practicing gratitude regularly is another one of the most effective ways for ourselves to manage our own stress uh, uh, and, uh, and hence uh, to protect our recovery. So I want to thank all of you for joining me. Final slide. Here's the link to my, uh, my, my website. You can go to that and I just published this today. You'll see it under forgiveness practice a mindfulness uh, meditation, and you'll see the script for today. I'll also uh, uh, have this added to Ask an Addiction Specialist and also our link at Beginnings Treatment Centers, who are our sponsors for today, uh, so that you can have access to, uh, to the actual script. And you're welcome to print it out and practice it yourself. Let me give a word of gratitude. Uh, uh, 
early in my recovery, I was involved with refuge recovery, specifically with Noah Levine, who's a local therapist and uh, a pioneer in recovery, introducing and integrating mindfulness uh, meditation with recovery. And owing to my own background, I found this approach really valuable. And so I really want to give uh, full acknowledgement, Noah, to your work, as well as to one of your prize students, George Haas. I, I had advanced training from both of you in practicing what we did today. And as you can see, I've, I myself have improvised and adapted it to something that works for me. In that spirit, to those of you that are listening today, I encourage you to do the same adaptation. Find what works for you. That's the pearl of great price. Thank you for joining me. I look forward to seeing you all. I'll be back next week. We'll be looking at practicing gratitude. And by the way, uh, I, I recommend that you go to Ask an Addiction Specialist here, our Facebook group, as well as Beginnings Treatment Center's Facebook group to find the archivable uh, video of today. Review that and then send questions. I'll be reviewing that. Austin and Franz will forward questions to me. I'm happy to engage with you through Facebook. You can also do the same thing on my website. You can just leave a comment or question there, and I will respond to you as quickly as possible. I, I feel like that if, if we're talking about plural recovery, it means that we're helping to heal ourselves in community. And I really want to uh, invite you to be a part of this community. Thank you for your attention today. It's wonderful to have you with me. Blessings to you. Have a good week. Okay, I'll see you next Wednesday.